We sang a song this morning called Cornerstone. It's actually an adaptation of an older hymn, which is why when singing it, probably some of you thought he's playing it wrong. (laughs) But it's actually a really great song. And the reason why we sang it this morning was because of what we're going to be talking about. We're in the 10th We're in the 10th part of the Apostles' Creed, and that is the portion of the creed that says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. The reason we sang Cornerstone this morning was because it talked about Jesus' blood and righteousness and abandoning all other hopes other than the foundation, the cornerstone laid, which is Christ Jesus. And it also talks about that the weak are made strong by the Savior's love. And so as we talk about this idea today of the forgiveness of sins, I don't want it to become some abstract idea that God made it possible for you to be forgiven of your sins. This isn't just a bullet point uh, in a theological textbook. This really matters. This is probably one of the most important portions of the Apostles' Creed for us to understand because we're so familiar with this idea that, you know, if we just pray and accept Jesus into our hearts, we're forgiven of sins. And that, you know, the, that's not really the way that the Bible describes salvation. It says, repent, turn from your sin, follow God, be baptized, not accept Jesus into your heart, be baptized, enter into the community of Christ called the church and live a new lifestyle. And, and that is how we come to know the Lord, which is kind of what we talked about last week. We also noted last week how the church came after the Holy Spirit. So it said, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Then it goes on to say the Holy Universal Church. Now we're talking about the forgiveness of sins. And one of the things to uh, pay attention to is the order of importance in the Apostles' Creed. The reason why the Apostles' Creed describes the Holy Spirit before the church is because the church was established on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 during the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who uh, communicates divine presence in and through the church to mediate the gospel into the world. And that's why the forgiveness of sins comes after the, the Holy Universal Church. Because the, the church for the last 2,000 years has been the continuation of the message of the gospel and whereas, you know, certain, we talked about the invisible church and the visible church last week, how even though there are places that call themselves churches, they might not be really churches. Needless to say, over the last 2000 years, God has through the church continually brought the gospel to greater and greater numbers of people. And so when we discuss the forgiveness of sins, yes, it's made possible by Jesus's blood. Yes, it wasn't accomplished by anything that we did, but we want to look at it in the context of that being a a message of the new community of Christians, uh, leaving the world, leaving the old nation of Israel and forming a new work uh, by God's design and plan. And so as we discuss this, uh, I'd like you to just keep that in mind. So we just had our reading today for Galatians 3. We're going to look at some of the things that Galatians 3 mentions about the forgiveness of sins. First, it talks about a promise given to Abraham and how that promise came before the law. Paul then goes on to talk about those who have begun to rely on the law and not the promise And then we're going to look at how the law does not abolish a covenant, but rather that the promise given to Abraham uh, survives through the law and that the law is actually uh, an unfolding of that covenant. Uh, 
we're going to look at how the law is not something that we can do in our own, but that we are actually under the law. We don't come to, uh, we don't hear the law and then start doing it right away. We actually hear the law and the law uh, actually condemns us, but the law is perfect and holy. And so we're going to look at what it means for us to say now that uh, we were under the law and now we're not under the law. Some people say that we were under the law and now that Christ has come, we're not under the law so we can do whatever we want. But that's not true um, because they don't understand what Paul's argument in Galatians 3 is. We were under law and we were unable to do it. Christ has come and redeemed us from the law and he's now put it into force. We're going to look at the promise of given to Abraham realized And then finally, we're going to look at an assurance of pardon, how we know that we've passed out of death and into life. So some questions when we, you know, you hear the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Well, if you didn't grow up in church, or if you are just somebody who maybe grew up in church, but you've never thought about it, you might have some questions. And the questions that are, you know, evident when you hear, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Well, first of all, what is a sin? And how are these sins committed? And, you know, is it impossible for me to not do a sin? You know, these might be types of questions that you have. Another question would be, if, if you believe in the forgiveness of sins, well, how are sins forgiven? You know, you say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Is that just a magic wand that gets waved over you and then you're forgiven? No. Uh, but how does it work? So who does the forgiving? If there's a, you know, in human relationships... If there is forgiveness in a relationship, one person forgives another person and somebody is doing the forgiving. There's an action there. And so if, if you believe in the forgiveness of sins, is that just the cosmic nebulous uh, okayness with your previous life? Or is this a real person who's granting pardon? And then finally, if this is true, if, if you really believe in the forgiveness of sins, if there really are sins and they really need to be forgiven, and there is really someone who does forgive them, then how do you come into this forgiveness? So those are our questions for today. So uh, let's jump right into the text that Larry graciously read this morning. Before we uh, start looking at it, let no one tell you that the Old Testament is only law and that the New Testament is only grace. That is uh, really simplistic and really wrong. Even if it wasn't simplistic, it's also wrong. Um, the, the Old Testament contains many, many examples of grace. In fact, all of the scripture is constantly filled with grace. The whole creation, God desiring for a people to exist, that is grace. God loved, uh, God had love within himself. The members of the Trinity had perfect fellowship and that joy was so magnanimous and stupendous and wonderful that he desired for others to experience that joy. And so out of the overflow of his love and joy, he created, and that was grace itself. And so the beginning of God's actions and all of God's actions are grace. There is no dichotomy between law and grace, even though some people present that. It's a false dichotomy. So Galatians 3, 6 through 9, it says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, skipping uh, 
to, uh, to verse nine. So then th- those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Notice it doesn't say Abraham was a man of law or he was really good at the societal keeping of the law of the, or of the Chaldeans. You know, he, this Abraham wasn't, he didn't find favor with God because he was a really good leader. He found favor with God because he had faith. But what did he have faith in? He had faith in the promises that God had given to him. So God had promised Abraham to make him a father of many peoples who he could not see in a land that he did not know. See, Abraham lived in a place called Ur, which is a city amongst the nation state of the Chaldeans. And this is not in Israel. And so God tells Abraham, you're going to leave your homeland and you're going to sojourn or travel to a land that you don't know. And there's going to be a people who you don't know through whom there's going to be a blessing. But, but the seed that comes through you, that is going to be a blessing to all the earth. And so this understanding of, of the promise given to Abraham, Abraham had no idea how this would be fulfilled. Abraham himself was an old man, Sarah was an old woman, and there was absolutely no way that there was going to be an offspring because they had already gone past the age of which you could have a a child. And so Abraham is literally presented with an impossibility. That would be like God coming to me and saying, John, you're going to have a mighty ministry in the NBA, and the Lord, the Lord is going to be glorified because you're going to win dunking contests. I'm going to, I'm going to first say I'm out of shape and I can't dunk. And this is just impossible. Like there, for Abraham, it was literally impossible. His wife was too old, way too old to have children. And, and he didn't have any kids. So the idea that he was going to be a father of many peoples or a father of many nations and bless the entire earth, that was ridiculous from a human perspective. Yet when Abraham heard God, he believed and it was accounted to him. God judged Abraham or did an account of Abraham's life and he counted him as righteous. And so this is, this is an act of grace and this is not at all Uh, some legalistic thing that Abraham went through. So Abraham's found in good standing with God. And then in Galatians 3, 8, it says, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Okay. That this is, this is the gospel that there's going to be a blessing to all the nations, not just Abraham's family. It says it, the scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So in the account of God speaking with Abraham, the gospel has been preached. Many of you, if I would have asked you at the beginning of this message, when does the gospel start in the Bible? You'd probably say Matthew 1.1, because that's the New Testament. And it's not the case. Uh, The gospel actually begins right at the beginning of the book, not only with creation, but with God intervening with Abraham. So God's heart in creation is to give joy and not just uh, get it. Um, and he desires to bless the world through a group of people and with, uh, namely one being Jesus. And the promise to Abraham is in you, all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. Now this message isn't about eschatology, but I, I'd like to challenge what you may believe about the end of the age, uh, or the end of all things. When Jesus returns, there has to be in your eschatology, uh, if you if you want to be consistent, you have to deal with the idea, how will all the nations of the earth be blessed 
if Jesus comes back in the next five minutes? Is there going to be a, you know, three minute revival in which everyone get, you know, there, there, you have to deal with this. If you, if you want, you can say it's just a symbolic blessing or, or whatever, but you have to deal with it. I think it's more convincing. I think that God wants to bless all peoples in all places. Every unreached people group having a witness for the, the Lord and every subculture within known reached people groups having a witness given to them about the salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ. So somehow, whatever happens to Abraham and his offspring, this is going to touch everybody in the earth. So after this discussion that Paul has in in Galatians uh, chapter 3, the first few verses, he then goes on to say in verse 10 that uh, there's another group of people that have not uh, believed in the promise, but that they receive the law. And instead of relying on the promises of God and remembering what God had done in removing them from Egypt, they have begun to try to do the law on their own and to be righteous in their own eyes before God. So in Galatians 3.10, this is what we're mentioning. It says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Paul says there's a group of people who are relying on their doing of the law. And he says, these people are a curse. Uh, they're, they're under a curse. They're, they're actually underneath this curse and they have no way of getting out. It says, uh, he's quoting it from Deuteronomy, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Or another translation is so to do them. Uh, if you don't obey everything in the law, you've broken the law. And this is a, this is a terrible state for us because, you know, we know, uh, what the law teaches. It teaches to have no other gods before him. I mean, we're done there. (laughs) We don't need to move on to the rest of the nine. So you will be under a curse if you do not complete the law. And Paul says that no one can do the law at all in the next few verses in Galatians 3:11 through 12 now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith but the law is not of faith that is the law didn't come the 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 doing of the law is not consistent with faith but rather the one who does them shall live by them so there Uh, those who cannot complete the law are under a curse. And it is the case that everyone is in this category of those who cannot complete the law. And so because we cannot complete the law, you and I are under a curse. This isn't just the people of Israel. And, And Paul makes this clear. Paul explains that the law did not nullify or make worthless or meaningless the gracious covenant that God gave to Abraham. Basically, the idea is this. God made a promise And then when he brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and gave the law to Moses, that law giving that was, was not a thing that could break the promise given to Abraham. And Abraham was found as righteous by believing God, not by doing something that God had told him to do. Although he did eventually obey and believe, but he, he believed God's promise and God then counted him as, as a man of faith or righteousness. So here with this, this whole law and covenant thing, you know, if you think the Old Testament is all law, well, you know, before they were given the law, God pulled them out of Egypt. That, that speaks of us being pulled out of sin by Christ and, and being washed in the waters of baptism. They were pulled out of Egypt. That was grace before law came. 
That's the way, that is the entire pattern of the, of the scriptures. Grace comes, then law. Or that is grace comes, then God commands you to change your life or to act in a new way or to act consistent with the grace that's just come. So God doesn't ever pull a bait and switch on, on Abraham and his descendants. He didn't say Abraham got through by just believing um, and now you get to go through by working really hard and trying to not sin. So Galatians three fifteen through 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So annulling is to make nullified or uh, a word, the word nullified means meaningless or worthless or, or without value. If you, uh, if you have a check and you're writing it out to somebody and you, you know, say something wrong or write it to the wrong guy or give the wrong amount, you nullify the check by writing over the check void or some people write null. You, you, you literally void out a check or nullify a check and that cancels it. And what Paul is saying here is that the law did not cancel the promise given to Abraham that all the earth would be blessed through him. And so those who are of faith are of the children of Abraham. So if the covenant to Abraham was established in grace and Galatians three fifteen through 18 teaches that the law does not destroy the covenant of grace. And in verse 16 or verse 15, it says that it can't be added to it or modified in any way, then that means that the law itself must be gracious. Now that's kind of a weird idea that the law itself is gracious. Well, how is the law gracious, you might ask? Well, the law is gracious because of verse 19, Paul explains in verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. So the law was given by God because of the transgressions of the, of the people. And the people of God and the people of earth, every, every person who's ever lived constantly breaks God's law. And this is the argument in Romans 1 that even though the, the Gentiles knew the truth of God, they suppressed it and hid their eyes. They buried their eyes in the sand like an ostrich. And they said, God doesn't exist and, and I'm going to ignore him. But, but Paul in Romans 1 and here makes the argument that they, uh, they were constantly rebelling against God. And so because of these transgressions, God gave the law. This is what happened in the garden. Adam questioned and disobeyed. And we too constantly, therefore, because we're descendants of Adam, before we come to Christ, we constantly question God's voice and disobey it. And we deafen our ears to his voice, thus further and further hardening our hearts and getting into deeper and darker sins. And this is, this is what happens. So how is the law gracious? Well, the law is gracious in that it's an in instrument of God's grace to show us and demonstrate that we are sinners. It's kind of like this. If you're in a, uh, if you're in a building that's about to explode and I know when the timer is going off, the, the law coming in uh, is kind of like someone yelling into the building, telling you to get out. They're about to demolish the building. You need to leave. That's what the law does. It comes in and shouts, hey, this whole thing's coming down on you and you need to get out. But the case is that the law can't deliver you out of that building, out of that situation. So God demonstrates to his people their need for one who can complete the law. So the righteousness of God is not an arbitrary righteousness, but rather 
this, this is a holy and righteous way of living. This is God establishing regulations and standards for the way that his people should live at this time. And so this law has societal implications, but it really is all about moral purity and righteousness before God. So fast forward from Abraham to Moses. Moses is given the law at Mount Sinai. And then after this, uh, he gives the law to the people. And this is probably the most tragic verse in all of the Old Testament. In Exodus 19, 7 through 8, so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words. I mean, this is a serious amount of, of instructions. He, they set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's like really sad. I mean, the reason it's really sad is because they were trusting from the very beginning that they were going to be able to do the law. They heard all these commandments to have no other gods before him, to honor their father and mother, to not envy, covet, steal, lie, murder, destroy, give false witness. And they thought, we can do this. We're going to do it all. And they were deceived. So we too, however, after hearing various religious, you know, sermons or, or invocations to righteous living, we too have very similar responses. I'm going to be a new guy. I'm going to start, you know, eating better and, and working out. And I'm going to, I'm going to start treating my family better after I go to the marriage seminar and all of these things. We do this constantly. We hear, we hear God's voice in some way, whatever it may be. And we think we're going to start doing this. So Paul in Romans 1 argues that even if some didn't have the law, they have the laws of God on their conscience. Therefore, all people are trapped under God's law, not just the law given through Moses. He confirms this in Galatians 3, 22 and 23, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, literally everything under sin. That word isn't like everything that you do at church or everything you, that you do at your job. Everything that you have done before God has been tainted by indwelling sin. That's, I mean, that's a scary idea that everything was trapped up under sin. So he continues, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So the language here in this section is the language of imprisonment and of detention of those who are in jail. In verse 23, the phrase held captive refers to those who are imprisoned. Literally, it's the same word uh, to, that's used in other places to talk about some of the apostles who are in prison. And they're unable to escape from this prison. In the New American Standard, um, I don't often like going to other versions. I like the ESV, which is what I usually preach out of. But the New American Standard is really good in this verse. It says in Galatians 3.23, it's a little bit different, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Now that word shut up isn't like when, you know, you're a kid and you tell you like your brother to like shut up. It's, it's kept up. It's, it's you're, you're locked in and you cannot get out. And so the law is the jail keeper for a period of time and for a certain purpose, but God does not come to his people, give them a law, keep them captive, and then throw away the key. He doesn't simply tell you to do some, some religious rules 
and then you know knows that you can't get out, and so he puts you in this place of waiting and, and frustration and futility, and then throw away the key. He doesn't do that. So if the, if the law is like this jailkeeper, if this is the language that Paul is using, why were we kept in custody for a time? Well, Paul goes on to answer this. We were kept under the law so that we could be led to Christ. Without the law, we would have been ignorant of our sins, manifold, various, extremely evil in every way. But because the law has come, we've seen our need. So now that faith has come, we are no longer held captive under a tutor. And this is what he says in Galatians 3.25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Because faith has come, we do not need the law to tell us our need for Christ. It still does that. But because we have now seen Christ, the one who's called faithful and true, we are no longer under the law. So this language that Paul is writing um, in about this imprisonment, what, what's the full picture here? Well, I think the full picture is, and this is kind of paraphrasing, but I think it's kind of like this. In this passage, you and the people of Israel, the people of God, you're in prison. You're in a prison and you, you're in there because of your sins. And your stubborn attempts at getting out of this prison have further compounded your sentence. Your, your idolatry and your desire to get out on your own has, you've incurred more and more penalty and you're, you're in this uh, waiting period. You're in, this, you're in this jail and you can't get out. After a time, you realize that you're never going to escape on your own. And so you, uh, you might abandon all attempts or, or you still do them. Nevertheless, you, you see the futility. So you're capped, you're kept under this law, and then Christ, the, the one who is faithful and true, walks by your cell and visits you. And seeing the faithful and true one, you respond in faith, and you cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Christ comes and unlocks the door and pulls you out. You're no longer kept in custody, and Christ comes and releases you. So in, in Galatians 3, this idea, this language of imprisonment and, and being kept under the law, being unable to get over this law, the, the idea is we're down here, there's a law that keeps us from, uh, from freedom, there's a law that reminds us of our sin, and our indwelling sin is, is magnified and magnified, and it's a stumbling block and we can't overcome. And after all of this, Christ comes and is born as one under the law. So justification in, in Galatians 3 is a release from imprisonment. It's a new verdict concerning your sentence. It's a declaration that those who have been confined under the law, but believe in Jesus are now innocent and righteous. Further, justification is a liberation from the custody of the law accomplished by Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. So the, the idea is there's this law here and we're trapped under and Christ comes and is born and he's the only one who can do the law and breaks it free for the rest of us. So while this is good, if we stopped here, it wouldn't be enough. Christ comes and unlocks you from your cell, you're out. But because of our indwelling sin, we know that we would go right back. We'd be in prison in the next few minutes. And so Christ not only releases you from the law, but also recreates your heart. He recreates you on the inside and 
unleashes your heart from the prison that's on the inside, not just the law, but the indwelling sin that kept you there. Christ comes and regenerates you. You're made into a new creation and you're given a new nature. So Jesus not only releases us from prison, but also recreates our inner man. If you remember two weeks ago when we were discussing the Holy Spirit, we saw how the, the giving of the Holy Spirit was actually a part of the gospel. It wasn't just, you know, when you hear the gospel, maybe a, a truncated Easter gospel, Jesus died, he, you know, he went to the cross, he died, he resurrected and, you know, then left and we're done. Part of the gospel is that God would send his spirit to inhabit his people and by his spirit, they would be the demonstration of God's heart on the earth. They would be living, shining lights. They would be examples of mercy walking around. And so in this same chapter, this idea is highlighted again. In Galatians three thirteen through 14, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So he He took our place. There's a switch that took place here. We were under a curse. Christ comes and removes us from that curse by becoming and encountering the curse for us. Verse 14, so that, this this is, Paul is connecting. Why did Christ come to die? He didn't just come to die to uh, get you forgiveness of sins. That happened. But there's a connecting verse, verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. When you begin to see the paradigm that the giving of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit as part of your daily life, communion with God by the Holy Spirit, empowerment to grow and live and mature and to bear good fruit by the reliance on the Holy Spirit, not on the reliance of you doing the law, that has always been part of the gospel. And if you get that paradigm, you'll see it everywhere in scripture. But these verses are connected. Christ died so that the Holy Spirit would be given, not just so that you would get forgiveness. So Christ totally suffered and absorbed the curse for us, and he died so that we would be granted the Holy Spirit. So the answers to our questions today, we've seen that Everything that is done apart from God's order, his word, his laws, all idolatry, covetousness, murder, lust, greed, avarice, cheating, stealing, sloth, pornography, drug addiction, these are all sins. And we all do these things. So if there are sins, how are these sins forgiven? Well, we saw how the curse brought about by sin and the breaking of the law was totally encountered by Jesus, the righteous one, who completely absorbed the curse for us. Who does the forgiving? God does. God counts you as righteous. He pronounces those who trust in the promises of God as being those who are righteous, not those who do the law. And finally, our last question is, how does one come into this forgiveness? Well, God is honored by those who abandon all attempts of self-righteousness and self-justification and place all of their hope and faith on Christ alone. That's why we sang that song this morning. On no other foundation should your life be built than wholly trusting in Jesus' name. So we know that we have forgiveness of sins, but even after coming to the church, coming to Christ, you know, being baptized, we still know that there are imperfections in our character. There are weaknesses of our nature and we encounter sins. You encounter sins. You do, you, you, whether you know it or not, you encounter sins that 
Um, maybe you're ignorant of what they are, but they're sins that you sin against God. And, and sometimes these sins are grievous sins and they, they plague you and they cause you to doubt whether you've really come to believe in God's promises. And we're going to close with this idea of, of an assurance of pardon. It's, it's not enough for you to just be baptized, start attending a church, reading your Bible, fellowshipping um, without the confession of sins. We in Protestant churches don't have the practice like they do in like the Catholic churches or Orthodox churches. Some, some parts of the Protestant church do, does have a confession of sins. But I believe that it is necessary for you to confess your sins to God. And it is helpful for you to confess your sins to a brother or sister in the Lord uh, if they're a mature person. But no matter what you do concerning that confession, whether you believe that you just confess to God or whether you believe you need to, to, to confess to a brother or a sister, it's important that you understand the scripture's uh, word concerning those who continue to sin after coming to a knowledge of the truth. Yes, we know that we cannot continue in habitual sin or else we make God a liar. However, there are failures in character and weaknesses in nature which you will face in your Christian walk. And there can be times where you doubt your assurance of salvation. And so we pray and we pray and we ask God to remove these types of things from us, but we don't see any breakthrough and there's dark seasons in our life. And uh, when this comes, we, we shouldn't be ignorant of the enemy's schemes. Satan doesn't come and just accuse you once and tell you, you know, just because you've, you sinned this one time, you're going to hell. Although he might try to do that. Most of us don't believe that. But what he tries to do is over time, it's, it's like a siege warfare. He comes day after day and accuses you. That's his name, the accuser of the brethren. And he comes before you and he whispers in your ear and he says, you're not really a child of God. You really won't grow. You really aren't maturing. You're not a real Christian. You shouldn't be ignorant of his schemes because uh, the Bible says we shouldn't be ignorant of his schemes. And you make war against spiritual warfare by knowing the tactics of the enemy. So this is something that you can experience in your life. Well, the voice of the devil does not speak once and if we listen to his voice, we can lose sight of what God says about us. And then all we do is that religious reliance on doing the law. We, we resolve, I'm not going to sin next time. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to fight temptation harder. And we actually get into a worse state than before. We have lost our reliance on the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so John, the, the writer, the re, John, the revelator has uh, a word for his, his people and he says this in his first epistle, what happens to you who continue to sin? Well, in John 1, 7 through 9, uh, I'm, and by continue to sin, I'm not meaning living like a sinner in a habitual pattern of sin. I'm saying you struggle with particular sins. In John 1, 7 through 9, he says, but if we walk in the light, if your pattern of living is toward righteousness, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our, our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The promise of God to you is not only after baptism, but by the continuing indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, you will be empowered to continually gain victory over indwelling sin. However, you will fall at times. And when you do, if you confess, he will faithfully and righteously, righteously wash you and cleanse you from that evil. John closes his letter in the same way in John 5, uh, 1 John 5, 11 through 13. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. This is something John says, I know I'm sure of. God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. If you can, in your darkest moments, see the son of God as being for you, if you can see him on the cross, dying in your place, you know that you you, ha- you still have hope. You haven't lost it yet. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son that you may know you have eternal life. One of the deepest resolutions for the continual problem of assurance of salvation is reading the New Testament epistles. That's the point, John says, of his letter, is I write these things so that you would know that you have eternal life. It's not just that I know I went through confirmation or I know I went through a catechism or I know I was baptized, but I know because I know the son is for me. I have an assurance because I know who God is. It's a, it's a Holy Spirit given gift that I know that I'm saved, that I know that God loves me. But should you be unable in some moment to remember those things or to call upon any verse in the Bible? Should the darkness come around you and the the enemy speak into your ear that you will never make it? You can say with confidence, knowing the heart of God, because the Apostles' Creed has taught you, you can say in that moment, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray.